And this is one of the things that's amazing about COAST is that when he got the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Committee cited only two papers in awarding him the Nobel, Nature of the Firm and the Problem of Social Cost. These two papers have been so influential that those were the only two things they called out. Welcome to the Essential Scholars Podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most influential economists of the 20th century, Ronald Coase. Joining me in this conversation, we have Dr. Lynn Kiesling. Lynn is a research professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's also the co-director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics, as well as an adjunct professor within Northwestern Master's Northwestern University's Masters of Science in Energy and Sustainability program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lynn. I know COAST has been a pretty big influence on your work as well as the work of many. So I'd love to chat with you today about what impact he's made on economics. Yeah, thank you. I, um, I couldn't agree more. I think COAST is one of the most influential uh, economists of the 20th century and so influential in such a way that we are definitely bringing some of his insights forward into the 21st century too. So can you tell us a little bit about who Coase was and a little bit about his background and, and maybe some of the intellectual influences on, on his work? Sure, Coase, um, well, so Ronald Coase was a, um, a British, he was born in Britain, born in London, uh, and he is most known for two papers, uh, but, and it, the reason I think it's interesting to start with that is that um, the first of the papers that, that he was most known for was work that he undertook as an undergraduate student uh, in the 1930s uh, when at the London School of Economics. And he was actually, one of the things that's interesting about Coase as an economist is that he was actually studying accounting and kind of applied business as an undergraduate. And, uh, and that he's able to bring some of those, what I guess I would call practical insights into his work, which ends up being more conceptual and more theoretical in his economics work. But um, he's starting from these really kind of practical applied business questions. And those are the things he's really interested in. So like, and we'll, we'll probably talk in more detail about this, but um, you know, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little intimidating, I think, to have like something that you're cited for when you get a Nobel Prize be your undergraduate thesis. Yeah, I, I had not realized that that was work that he started as an undergraduate. It makes me feel a little bit, you know, uh, behind the curve quite a bit. We're, we're measuring ourselves against coasts. <laughs> yeah, that I, that I would definitely caution people not to do that. Exactly. <laughs> he got this fellowship to... Um, you know, so, you know, a, big, a scholarship to pay for him to come to the U.S. and study business operations. And, and basically he went around to a whole bunch of um, automobile plants and actually look at how they were operated and look 
how their um, their revenues and costs were being accounted for, and um, and so it's one of the things that really feeds into his overall research project, which is that the institutional structure of production is really important. So the institutions that you know, which are the the kind of to quote Doug North, the rules both formal and informal that structure our interactions. Uh, economic and social interactions are really, really important. And that's a theme that goes throughout his work, not just that institutions are important, but um, he had a bit of a disdain for uh, what he called blackboard economics. So the fact that he's kind of building his theories off of his practical experience, things that he observed in the real world, um, seems like that was a very central uh of central importance to Coase, that his work would be applicable. Yeah, I think that's right. That, that he he most he throughout his career he very much emphasized the importance of um, not being too abstract in our theorizing, and that um, one of his criticisms, blackboard economics, which I guess these days we would call whiteboard economics. <laughs> is that uh, the way economics has evolved uh, over the past 130 years has been very much in a way to, to systematize economic theory by formalizing it, by, by making it more mathematical in its expression. And, and he definitely was of the opinion that that had some benefits, but that there was a limit to it, that you know, in order to make problems mathematically tractable, something that you can model using using math, that you are actually abstracting from uh, aspects of economic decision making that are precisely where the interesting questions are. And so, even though you know he won the Nobel Prize. So obviously he is, you know, rewarded and respected within the mainstream of the profession. He's also challenging that mainstream quite a bit. Very much so. And, and I think it's, um, it is interesting to look at the trajectory of his career because he started by, by making some what he thought were fairly straightforward and simple observations and then out their implications for economic theory. And at first, um, he didn't always find the most welcoming audience for his ideas, but, um, but then he, I would say he was extremely persistent and, um, and, and focused because I think his, his overall research project had this very, um, clear focus on the institutional structure of production, which, and the reason I, I keep using that phrase is it was the title that he gave to his Nobel lecture. And it's a really nice encapsulation of exactly what he's about. And that he just kept focusing on that, that, you know, okay, well, you know, you, you can have this theory that says X, but if you take into account the actual institutional structure of how production actually occurs, um, your theory X doesn't necessarily explain this or, you know, you're overlooking you know, where all the action is. 
So he's he's really challenging the neoclassical framework because there's not space in that framework to discuss the messiness of institutions. Exactly. They, kind, they kind of assume that everybody's institution, when you hold it constant, you're kind of assuming it either doesn't matter or everybody kind of looks the same with regard right. to those rules. Right. And and so, you know, what's what's the first thing you learn when you're studying production in microeconomics, right? That output is a function of labor and capital. And there's no room in there for institutions. There's not even room in there for innovation, right? And so that's, you know, and I, I you know, one of the things I think will important for us to discuss is the economists who influenced him and how he has influenced other economists. And, um, you know, he never doesn't really explicitly call out Joseph Schumpeter a lot. But one of the things that animates Coase's interest in the institutional structure of production is precisely some of the dynamics that we usually associate with Schumpeter, that, you know, it's it's the institutional arrangements that structure actions that enable us to um, to do some of the kind of dynamic decision making that leads to innovation and technological change and mm-hmm. um, new forms of industrial or new business forms. And that's so there's a big intersection there between Coase and Schumpeter. And he had a few other influences, important influences while he was at University of Chicago, correct? He he taught, he learned with um, Frank Wright. So he and- Or Frank so, Knight, sorry. He, he, <laughs> I'll, I'll do a little bit of biography background. So yeah, after, please. Yeah, after he, um, uh, after he finished uh, his um, work at, at School of Economics, and he came over to the U.S. and uh, was on the faculty at, um, I think, is University of Buffalo which, or SUNY Buffalo. That, um, you know, I, it's a university that has changed its name recently, but SUNY Buffalo, we'll call it. And mm-hmm. he was there for a bit and then went to the University of Virginia. And he was at the University of Virginia for a few years. And one of the things that really evolved um during his time at Virginia was the the intersection between um, his institutional questions, the intersection between the economics and the law, that, that one of the things that, that obviously um, shapes the institutional framework in which people make decisions is gonna be the legal context. And so he really started to sharpen and focus his um, his bringing bringing law into into um, his analyses, and uh, the other, of course, being at Virginia at the time, he was formulating what would be longstanding relationships with James Buchanan and you know the kind of formative scholars of the Virginia School of Political Economy and Public Choice, and so that shows up in in Coase's work as well. Um, but then he went to the University of Chicago and was in the law school, not the economics department, and was the founding editor of the Journal of Law and Economics. And so he had some very important colleagues there, as as you say, Frank Knight was one of them. Frank Knight had been the dissertation advisor for James Buchanan. And so you get that that kind of school public choice connection there. 
Um, Friedrich Hayek was at Chicago at the time in the Committee on Social Thought. And so they had quite a bit of interaction. And one thing I'm always going to be pointing out when I look at Coase is how Coase pulls ideas in from Hayek. And uh, so I'm going to probably point out a few of them as our conversation continues. But then he really started to shape the, um, the burgeoning new field of law and economics with a collaboration with uh, other faculty who were there at the time, um, Aaron Director, and then later Friedman. But, but Friedman and Coase, you know, Friedman wasn't really in the law and economics. Um, but then later, George Stigler, uh, Sam Peltzman. So, so yeah, that, that time at, at Chicago, and then he was at Chicago basically uh, till the end of his life. Um, and he worked for, he had a career that spanned about 80, 80 years, yep. which is. And yeah. In, in, I think um, if I recall correctly, uh, he had, um, at the age of 103, he was a co-author of a new book on um, economic growth in China. So, so he was working right up until the end, just exploring his passion for economics and, and institutions. Yep. Um, so one thing that I think of when I think of Coase, uh, transaction costs is just that economic term that to me is synonymous with, with Coase and his work. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what are transaction costs and, and why were was this concept so important to Coase? I think the the concept of transaction costs can be a little little slippery, um, mm -hmm. but uh, and that's I think one of the one of the critiques that comes from from kind of the formal economic theory side of Coase's work is that. Um, you know, that sometimes the concepts he uses are too vague. And of course, his response to that was, well, you know, have you looked at reality? You know, <laughs> you know there's, <laughs> as, as um, we always say about Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith has this phrase where he talks about how the, basically, Adam Smith was also very much an institutional economist and that a lot of the institutional framework that we inhabit in the real world is, quote unquote, loose, vague, and indeterminate. <laughs> and I think that that framing from Smith really inspired Coase. And Coase is like, yes, <laughs> loose, vague, and indeterminate is something we have to deal with. But that's, you know, an important part of, of defining what we mean by transaction costs. And I mean, the, the most basic definition of transaction costs is that they are uh, costs that are associated with um, with some form of economic exchange. Uh, so say, for example, uh, that you and I were to enter into a contract to, I was going to um, sell you my house. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about uh, a house is it's a very expensive and very durable asset. And one of the things we want to make sure in this transaction is that I have the legal right to to the house and that I'm the one, I'm the one who actually owns the house so that I'm the party that's responsible for the house and therefore have the legal right to sell it to you. And so, um, so transactions costs, and you can see it in the way I just said that transaction costs are intimately tied to the idea of, um, of property rights. And 
so so how how can we determine those rights for something like a house you know you have a title a deed mm-hmm. and you know you hire lawyers to verify and, and and a surveyor right to verify and validate the deed and the edges of the property and and so forth and then we have an elaborate legal transaction that we go through and you have a lawyer and i have a lawyer and we go to a title company and everyone gets paid a little bit out of the closing costs. Those are transaction costs. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and they're, they're sizable, you know, but for something that is as important and, and you want to get it right and make sure everything is clear, uh, you know, we're willing to bear those transaction costs for something like buying and selling houses. Uh, if we had to go through that w- with you know buying and selling milk at the grocery store, you know, that would be that would be very challenging. And so, so if you think about simply about transactions costs as the costs associated with consummating a transaction, with getting the buyer and seller together and having them both leave being happy because of their mutually beneficial exchange. Um, and so in, in, you know, going to the grocery store and buying some milk, transaction costs are much lower. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier than to see that there are multiple places you can go, multiple competing sellers of milk. Um, and, and transaction costs are very low in that case. And so there, and there's a range, right? That mm-hmm. runs the gamut between those two extremes. But if transaction costs are high enough, it might stand in the way of, of you and I making a potentially mutually beneficial exchange. Exactly. And so if we did have to go through like the legal closing costs every time we bought and sold milk, then a lot less milk would be transacted and we would be worse off, you know, assuming that we all get benefit out of, out of milk. Um, and so that's, that's really the question that animates a lot of COSA's work uh, is the question of to what extent do transaction costs get in the way of people entering into mutually beneficial transactions? So what do we do about that? How do we how do we grapple with transaction costs if they're standing in our way? There are a few different things. So so I and this is where I think um, Coase again is is pulling forward some some themes from Adam Smith. Um, but this is also going to reflect my bias because of the nature of, of my work, which focuses on technological change. Um, that one thing that happens is innovation. Mm-hmm. So if we if if we see a transaction that that looks like it could be beneficial, you know, and and you know, you and I have a transaction, and we see I, I'm the seller, say, and I see that oh, I would I would really benefit. I could profit. I can make a living from entering into this kind of transactions, this kind of business, but the transaction costs are really high. Uh, and so um, a typical and a typical form of a transaction cost can be something like a regulation mm-hmm. or some law that prevents exchange. And, um, and so, so I might, innovate some, you know, I might change my business model or come up with some new kind of device or come up with some way that um, is not prone to that kind of regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so 
But and again, this is where you see that the transaction cost concept is a little loose, vague and indeterminate because transaction costs can be something as simple as as search costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and different, some economists might, you know, try to split hairs a little and say, well, search costs are different from transaction costs. I'm, I tend to lump them in. And, and so, so one, uh, if you have one category of transaction costs that are things like regulations, those can be a little harder to get rid of, but mm-hmm. then some of them might be with search costs, just finding each other. And so this is the sense in which when we when we think about applications to current what's going on currently in the economy, digital innovation is first and foremost a transaction cost reducer. Mm-hmm. So if you think about Amazon as a platform, you know, it starts with selling books, but then it it really brings people together, buyers and sellers. You know, at, mm-hmm. at that point, the seller was Amazon. But then they open up the platform to third party sellers, and it it really reduces the cost of buyers and sellers finding each other. And it does a lot more. It also reduces you know the cost of of disputes. Right. Amazon has their own way of, of when the buyer and the seller just dis, are dissatisfied with the transaction. Um, so it seems like it's in Amazon's interest to help us reduce transaction costs. Otherwise, why would we use Amazon? Exactly. And and so if there's a dispute, right? So pre-Amazon, mm. say, you know, we have the cost of finding each other. And then um, if there's some dispute in the contract, then we each have to deal with lawyers. And, and so, so if you think about that as kind of the pre-digital transaction costs, and then you have Amazon, Amazon reduces the transaction costs of finding each other, and they, they incur the cost of setting up a dispute resolution mechanism. But in total, those costs are lower and because of that, they get a lot of, of trade, a lot of volume on the Amazon platform. And so they make more profit even because they and, and, and they've incur, they're willing to incur the cost of the dispute resolution mechanism because it reduces transactions costs and gets more people um, exchanging. And yeah. that is beneficial for them. So how does our uh, other institutional environment affect things like transaction costs? So so property rights get mentioned quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they many institutional economists refer to property rights as, you know, essential prerequisite for any kind of economic growth to take place. Yep. Um, I can imagine if we lived in a society where property rights weren't well enforced and well protected, your transaction costs would be a, a lot higher in that kind of society. Yep. So this legal and political context that COAS is, is paying attention to, how does that come into play here? That's uh, that's a great question. And it, it opens up a lot of, into a lot of research in the, you know, one of the things that, that COAS's work has done is it, it, spawned a research field in economics, institutional and organizational economics, sometimes also called transaction cost economics. But, and there are some people who, who would even define transaction costs as the costs of defining and enforcing property rights. So, um, 
So the, the property rights question is really important. And it's one of the things that early, even early on in his career, Coase identified as one of the um, simplifications in economic theory that is not very useful because, um, you know, in this case, you know, move from, from kind of producer economic theory to exchange theory. And, you know, you have, you know, in, in kind of neoclassical exchange theory, you have, you know, say two people, Anna and Bob and two goods mm -hmm. and Anna and Bob have utility functions that state their, their preferences over the two goods. And then, you know, they each start with an initial endowment and then they trade and out of that process, the unequilibrium price emerges. Mm -hmm. And all of that assumes that Anna and Bob have the right to exchange the stuff that, that they're endowed with. And so property rights are just kind of assumed and ignored. And, and that's one of, one of his criticisms. But really, property rights are, um, are, are really important but challenging. And if you think about the property right, it's not, it's not a simple concept. Right. It's not just, you know, I own I own this can of soda. It's, um, you know, ownership of or having a, a right in a piece of property uh, means that you can you're the one that determines how that property is used. So you can either use it yourself you can sell it to someone else, you can lease it to someone else or loan it, you can give it away, you can let it just sit idle. Um, there are any number of things that you can do if you have a property, if, if you have a, a you know, property in some, in some resource, but that that property right isn't always clear. Right? For something like a can of soda, it's it's pretty straightforward, you know, this is mine. And if I drink it, that means that, you know, I'm the only one that can consume it and there's less for anyone else, which means it's, um, and we'll, we'll probably come to this later, it's rival in consumption. Mm -hmm. If I consume some of it, then that means less is available for someone else. But, um, but then there are other types of goods or, or types of situations where we don't, have clear definitions of who has that right. And then there are even some types of, of goods where multiple people can use it simultaneously without diminishing it. Um, and so that opens up a whole host of new and, and challenging questions. Yeah, because we're going to, you know, we live in a society, there's benefits of living together with other people, but once you're living together with a bunch of other people, we run into what, uh, you know, we have this social problem that Coase calls the problem of social costs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, I think that is the natural next thing to, to discuss. Yeah, the, um, and this, this is the second paper that Coase is famous for. The first one about why, why do firms exist was called mm -hmm. um, The Nature of the Firm. And that was the work he did as an undergraduate and, mm -hmm. and said basically, why do firms exist? You know, why don't people just trade 
with each other? Why do we have this hierarchical arrangement of employers and employees to produce stuff? And the answer was transaction costs. So if, if it's too expensive to contract through the market, mm-hmm. then you come up with this hierarchical or institutional arrangement to organize production. And, and the, um, the problem of social costs was his second famous paper. Um, and this is one of the things that's amazing about Coase is that the Nobel, when, the, when he got the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Committee cited only two papers in awarding him the Nobel, Nature of the Firm and the Problem of Social Cost. And he had a host of other, you know, he had plenty of other things, but these two papers have been so influential that those were the only two things they called out. And so the, the problem of social cost is, again, a, a transaction cost argument, but it's, um, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a great paper for, and especially, again, in this burgeoning law and economics literature in the 1960s, um, because he's really synthesizing his transaction cost focus in economics with a whole bunch of legal precedent. And so he cites a bunch of legal cases and says, okay, well, you know, when we have these legal disputes, one of the reasons that we have these disputes is because it's either costly or just not even feasible to fully define who has the right to do what in certain situations. And, and so he uses his kind of transaction cost framework to think about that. And, um, you know, the example that, that I use in, in the book, um, which is a, a favorite example of mine, I always used to use when I was teaching environmental economics, and I got it from Bruce Yandel. So full credit to uh, Bruce for that. Um, and it is, uh, you know, if you think about a river running through town, and there's a paper mill that operates on the river. And so in the process of making paper, they produce some waste and the waste, um, you know, they have to figure out a way to get to, you know, get rid of the waste and there are costly ways to do it. But if there's no cost to no, no financial cost to them of dumping it in the river, they'll dump it in the river. But then there's, um, you know, that's downstream say, and there's a, you know, a park, and people like to go out and swim and kayak and fish in the river. Uh, and then downstream, there's a water treatment plant for the town. And that when the water is particularly full of waste from the paper mill, their costs of treating the water go up. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, this river and all of these different users and types of uses of the river. And some of those uses conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And so like if, if the paper mill is just putting in a little, little bit of waste in the river, the river can absorb that and it just kind of flows through. And, but if they put in enough so that it's kind of smelly and it looks kind of gross and people don't want to swim in it and the fish are dying um, and then the cost to the water treatment plant of cleaning the waste out for the drinking water. Um, So that example really illustrates that the river is a resource, but you don't have very well-defined rights for how these different users use the river. And that's the kind of situation that Coase is really focused on 
in the problem of social cost. And there's a couple of different ways you can deal with this, right? If it's just the paper mill and the water treatment plant, you know, the guys from the water treatment plant can go and knock on the door and say, you know, excuse me, you know, your waste is really increasing our costs and we need to figure out a way to, to sort this out. And so that's what has come to be called Kosian bargaining. Mm-hmm. And that's a situation where you've got two parties, they know each other, they can find each other. That's a situation of low transaction costs. But what happens if it's, um, you know, five paper mills and 20 water treatment plants, oh, and the fishers and the swimmers and the kayakers, then finding each other and negotiating and bargaining with each other is gonna be really costly. So that's a high transaction cost environment. And so depending on the, the how high or low the transaction costs are, you might come up with a different institutional approach to dealing with the harm that, that arises in, in the situation. So when the costs are a bit more widespread and, and falling on a lot more people, is that then maybe a role for community bargaining or is that a role for maybe a, a higher level of, of decision making? Is that room mm-hmm. for government involvement? Yeah, and this is, yes, and I, I will say Coast was, Coast was no anarchist. Right. So yeah, I would, I would definitely say Coast is very much a classical liberal. And so, but, and he's also, um, because of his focus on the importance of analyzing the institutional reality of situations, you know, he's going to look and say, well, if transactions costs are high, what are the alternatives? You know, so if they're high enough that these parties can't come together and bargain, um, there are a few different ways you can deal with that. One is you can try to, reduce transaction costs. And so in, in that category, I would put um, kind of Coase's view of the role of the, of the courts, the role of the judge, mm-hmm. right? So the, say the paper mill and the water treatment plant, they can find each other, but they can't, um, you know, they can't come to agreement or that there's, you know, they're, they are having difficulty finding each other. One way to resolve this is a legal process, right? You file a lawsuit, you go to court, you, you know, the judge makes a decision. And in, in the English common law tradition, that decision then becomes precedent. Mm-hmm. And Coase says, well, that precedent can help to clarify who has the rights to use the, the resource in what ways. And um, so let's say, for example, that the court has laid down a, you know, so it would be, you know, the, the water treatment plant filing a tort lawsuit against the paper mill uh, because of the harm that the paper mill's waste is causing for the water treatment plant. And suppose that the, um, the court comes back and basically says, yes, the, the paper mill is legally responsible for the costs that they create by putting waste in the river, that essentially creates a property right for the water treatment plant in the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, or the court could come back and say, you know, decide that no, the water the paper mill is within its legal rights to put that waste in the river, and then the water treatment plant would have to either 
innovate, come up with some kind of fancy reverse osmosis, charcoal, et cetera, you know, filtration, and they would bear the cost of that, or they would have to pay the water treatment, the, the paper mill to reduce their waste. And so, and, and this is, it gets us to, to an important, um, what I would call an important kind of side juncture in the problem of social cost, which is no matter whether the court decides that the paper mill has the right or the water treatment plant has the right, they've clarified who has the right and that reduces transactions costs that enables better bargaining mm-hmm. and better a better process for discovering what the least cost way is to deal with the harm that's being that's happening. Now, is there a way to introduce market dynamics to something to mitigating some environmental harms of this nature? I think in the book, uh, there is the example of how uh, we mitigated the problem of, of acid rain. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that example? Yeah. And, and this is where, you know, um, to kind of fully bring in your previous question, uh, this is where I think, you know, one, so one approach is reducing transactions costs to better enable bargaining to happen. The other is, is to have some kind of external form of regulation. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that, that Coase always encouraged people to, do the analysis carefully and compare, you know, here are the costs and benefits associated with the status quo. Here are the costs and benefits associated with the reducing transaction cost option. Here's the costs and benefits associated with the regulatory option, right? Mm-hmm. And to do that kind of realistically. But, um, and, and using that kind of framework, uh, when, so the problem of social cost was published in 1960 and after that, um, you know, and there's a famous, George Stigler tells a famous story about how, you know, first Coase presented the working paper in the research seminar there. And, um, and everyone was just like, no, this is crazy. You, you're, you're, you're wrong. You can't be right. And then a whole bunch of people then went out to dinner after the seminar and they continued talking about it. And, and Stigler says that over the course of the dinner, Coast pretty much persuaded them that the argument was sound. So, um, and and so it, it his argument gained traction over the next few years, and it's also really carrying over some arguments he had earlier made in some work with the Federal Communications Commission about um, how the FCC allocates radio spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's the same kind of argument where, you know, radio spectrum is it's ill-defined property rights. And so what you need is some kind of institutional structure, institutional framework to better clarify how people are going to use this shared common pool resource. Mm-hmm. Um and then um, you know, that work, people really started picking up on this in the you know, 70s and 80s and really developed a lot of work based on Coase's argument. Um, and then in 1990, well, so in, in the U.S. in 1970, the um, uh, Congress passed the Clean Air Act, which put in place some pretty serious uh, regulation of air quality, of, mm-hmm. in particular things like sulfur dioxide, 
which, um, you know, sulfur dioxide plus water um, creates acid rain. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so uh, with, and, and the sulfur dioxide that, that was mostly the problem was due to burning high sulfur coal in um, coal fired power plants. Okay. And so when you generate electricity, you're, you know, you're burning coal to generate electricity. And as a, as an unintended byproduct of that out of the smokestack comes sulfur dioxide. Mm -hmm. And that um, over, over time people realized uh, and discovered that the, the um, sulfur dioxide coming out of smokestacks, combining with water, was causing problems, respiratory problems for, for people, so it had health effects, was causing um, ecosystem problems, you know, trees were dying, and mm. is also eroding statues in cities. So if you ever go to a city in the Northeast in the U.S. and you see what looks like a kind of a half eroded, crumbled kind of the gargoyle faces um that's usually due to acid rain huh. but um yeah so fun fact <laughs> but um so they implemented the clean air act to try to deal with pollution like this and it was very command and control mm -hmm. um, you know heavy regulation penalties um quotas etc and by 1990 it was pretty clear that it wasn't working mm -hmm. air quality had not improved and so some folks who were um, had were very familiar with COSA's work said, why don't we try a different approach? Why don't we um, put in place still a regulation? So it's a, it was a project with the Environmental Protection Agency, put in place, um, you know, a, a basically a framework for the reduction of sulfur dioxide pollution but to implement it instead of through regulation, through a permit trading system. Hmm. And so they set up this, this system where um, they created the, these rights and each, each right was the right to emit a ton of SO2. And um, they created a new market platform for it at the Chicago Board of Trade. And um, companies that owned coal-fired power plants were required, beyond, you know, beyond a certain size, were required to participate in this. And the rule, and, and clarified the rules. The rule basically was you needed to have a permit for every ton of SO2 you emitted. And if you didn't have them already from the, the kind of initial allocation you got, you have to go to the market and buy them. Hmm. Um, and so this is, it's not a fully coast, coast solution because, you know, in a full coastian solution, you might expect the participants to interact to figure out what the right level of SO2 emissions mm -hmm. is. And this was the EPA basically using environmental science to determine that. Mm -hmm. But then after that, letting the, letting the bargaining and the, the letting the market transactions occur. And what was really striking about this was, you know, and, and the economics behind this is really great, that um, the idea is that some, some emitters are going to, it'll be cheaper for some emitters to reduce their pollution. Some emitters are going to have a really hard time and it's going to be really expensive. And so you want the, you know, from a kind of efficiency perspective, you want the people who can reduce their pollution more cheaply 
to do more of it. And the people who it's expensive for them to reduce their pollution, you sell them the permits. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, those people were willing to pay more for the permits and the people who had the permits, but it was cheap for them to reduce their pollution. They were happy to sell at that higher price. Um, and so this worked great. And um, SO2 levels fell. Um, they fell faster than was anticipated. Um, all, all kinds of, and, and air quality improved considerably. So it was a real... It's a real success story for economists. Well, we're about out of time for this part of our conversation. So I hope that next time when you join me, we can continue to explore more practical applications of COSA's work um, in the environmental sphere and, and in others. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks, Rosie. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time.